Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very, very, very special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, the doctor of style, the doctor of substance, the doctor, Anirban Mahanti. How are you, Doc? Good day, Captain. I am actually very good. Are you? Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. Is that still the echo, of the, the, the halo of the Apple event? Does make you feel good? The high speed. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I like to hear it. Mate, I... Well, well here's the oh, thing, right? Because when by the, time this, style, po- yeah, ten- by the time this podcast would have been available... Yes, goes to a yes. I would have ordered my new phone. Oh, there you go. So I would be happy Friday, whatever time. So are, you even, are you happier with the anticipation or the arrival? What, what makes you, you happier? You know, like, here's the thing. Like, okay, this is another tangent. <laughs> this is what really bothers me. Like, I mean... Why wouldn't you allow me to buy the phone today? <laughs> like you can go to the site, configure it, but you can't pay. This is another example. Where I want to give you my money, but you don't want to take it. What if I forget by Friday? Oh. What if I change my mind by Friday? But no, you've got to make me wait till Friday. <laughs> exactly. I, I have not figured that out. You know, exactly. why does why do the doors for online sales need to open <laughs> at a certain point in time? And it, it's not a special or something, right? I mean, you're going to pay the price that's mm-hmm. already there on the site. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's one of those things. There we go. There we go. Um, <laughs> now, uh, on Friday, I, I mentioned that Mark E. Maldesade, I pronounce his partner's French name perfectly. And then we got a question from one particular listener who finishes with, so I think his name's pronounceable. I think I know what it is, except that he finishes with, Bonus point if you can pronounce my name. And that just scares me because now I'm not sure whether I think I know or whether it's this bluff and double bluff thing where he's trying to tempt me to say something different because I'm trying to pronounce it differently somehow. So I, I, it's my own stupid fault, mate. I've, I've absolutely bought the camera on myself by, by giving myself a rap. So I think the gentleman's name is Bertrand. Do you agree? You know, I'm running a search. <laughs> <laughs> That's the better for getting type while I talk. Yeah. Bertrand, and, uh, Bertrand. Oh, mate. See, now I'm now I'm going to go with Bertrand because that's what I would have said, but I'm secretly concerned I'm wrong. Bertrand. Bertrand, right? Bertrand. Bertrand. Yeah, Bertrand. There you go. So, Bertrand, if I, I, I can only assume from your brackets, though, that there's some trick to it. I've probably got it wrong, so my apologies in advance if I've got it wrong. If I've got it right, please let me know because, uh, mate, I'm, I'm now I'm just, you know. Started off, started off worried. That's not a good way to start a podcast episode. All right. He says, hey, Scott, first things first. I love listening to your opinion via the podcast and Twitter. Thank you, mate. It helps me. It helps educating me about the market and entertaining my weekend's walk. Oh, good. That's, that's good to know. Uh, I do tend to rant a little bit on Twitter. So if you like a bit of a, a, bit of a rant, hopefully a considered rant, but a rant nonetheless, jump on Twitter and follow me, TMF Scott B. All right. He said, I would love my questions answered on the podcast. We will. He says, a few months ago, I took a small position on a company called Opthea. They have recently registered for a, an IPO on the US market. Now, this is an Australian company, but it's registering for an IPO, a secondary listing effectively using American depository shares on the US market. My questions are, what does it mean for my Australian shares? He says, I guess more shares are going to be printed, so they could be diluted and lose their value. He says, although the US market is much bigger so the potential upside for the company, like raising money and a much broader visibility, is, I guess, really positive. What are your thoughts on this? And he says, also, what are the consequences and benefits for a company that is about or already listed in two different markets? He says, keep up the great work, educating many investors while having fun. We're doing our best. A full on, and then he gives me the hands up thing. What's that full on praise? Is that the hands in the air thing? 
Anyway, full on hands in the air. And then he says, bonus point if you can pronounce my name, which we've already covered. And then he winks. So I think I've probably walked straight into his trap. But Bertrand, if I've got it wrong, my apologies. If I've got it right, let me know. More importantly for everybody listening, other than me ranting about or, or rambling about pronunciation, Doc, a company that's in Australia that chooses to list its shares on a US market, I'm a cynic. I'm thinking, well, they're doing that because they're just trying to – you mentioned last uh, last podcast about share price management – I have to worry about not this particular company. I won't. I won't libel anybody to save myself the court appearance. But suffice it to say that I'm sure for many companies, maybe not this one. For many companies, share price management is first, second, and third in their minds. Am I being too cynical? What do you think about a company that has dual listed shares here and in the US? Yeah, like, so, like, and share price management to a varying degrees. Almost every company does. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. So again, I don't know about this. So I don't know much about this com- particular company. You know, I'll say a couple of things. Like it's a biotech. Um, now, uh, like there is a general sense maybe that so we've got a nice little uh, you know if you've got niche tech, mm. um, you know, focused niche tech, then ASX is actually a very good place to list it. Um, so we've we've that that sector is 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 growing nicely, right? We've go- even got a, a tech ETF now, right? Um, or not a tech index, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. so, so so I think I think that's a little bit of um, uh, uh, I think that's the ASX trying to get more volume. Is my is my I'm a cynical, sure, I'm sure. a cynical bastard. You're being what can cynical. I say? Yeah, but like, <laughs> I mean, it's like it's yeah, it's like I mean. Like you know, I'm cynical too. Like I mean, there are those four big banks that well, occupy I think like more cynical than me most yeah, of the time. like uh, I don't know the four big banks. They don't deserve to be like forty percent of the thirty percent of the market. <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, nowhere else in the world, I guess. Maybe <laughs> Canada is an exception, um, yep. uh, which would be like this. So I mean, that you know, that's the cynical. But, but <laughs> the with with the biotech. So there are a couple of things that can happen with the biotech. If a biotech has most of its operations and revenues or mm. its products being uh, developed, released in the U.S., mm. it then makes sense for them to try to raise capital in the US I think um, because if you US is the lar- world's largest health market mm. uh, if you can get something approved you know FDA generally has probably the highest bar for approval once you've got something approved by FDA you'd likely to get it approved in other jurisdictions relatively easily mm. um, you know the hoops that you have to jump and FDA's hoops are pretty wide and far yeah. Yeah. so so given those things, now the hoops are always, uh, so if you have a biological agent, like mm-hmm. you know, I'm not using that in a negative way, biological agent is yeah. stuff that you put inside your body, yeah. Yeah. that has a much higher bar versus if you are doing like an imaging or a software or, or a scanning agent. Sense, right? yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with something I ingest to have a, a slightly higher standard of, of proof required. Yeah, much higher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so that, that's that. Yeah. Um, a food the, versus a television are two very different things. Exactly. Yeah. So... So that could be a reason for going to the U.S. to raise capital, mm-hmm. and it would make sense mm-hmm. because you'd be closer to your market and potentially to investors. You know, you could use like if you, if you're, for example, trying to get into hospitals, then you have the people that talk about these products there. They can be used mm-hmm. to, you know, find new investors and things like that. Um, that said, here's the flip side of that. I'll give you the flip side. The flip side is. Any company that's say you know a billion dollars or less in market cap, you know it's a large company in Australia. Mm-hmm. It's a small company. It's a it's a it's a micro cap Tiny, in the US. Right, exactly. Uh, uh, you know those those are small caps or micro caps in the US. People 
a lot of people will ignore them because yeah. they would consider them to be outside their mandate. Yeah, fair. Right? Um, and they are actually, I mean, they are literally outside their mandate in a lot of cases, right? Some, yeah. li- some funds literally say, well, five this billion is what plus. we do, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and, it's in, and we have those mandates here too, right? Yep. I mean, again, yep. it's the way different markets operate, so people need to realize that. So I think sometimes companies potentially do not realize this, that, mm-hmm. You know, you actually went away from being a large company to being a small company, small yeah, company right. in a much larger yeah. market. Yeah. You know, you might have actually, you know, the first initial IPO money would be easy to raise, but after that, it might be a struggle, yeah. right? Um, so for, there's for a big fish in a small pond, or a small fish in a big pond. Yeah, right? it's relative thing, and you know, the, yeah. relatively speaking, there's a lot of money slushing around in super and in invest in, in investor land here. Yeah. So you could have raised capital here. So that's that aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes it's management team's uh, desire to have fame. You know, I'm listed in NASDAQ, <laughs> right? Uh, a little bit of have, management, and yes. And yeah. I have arrived, yeah, and, you know, yeah. like my company is listed in NASDAQ. Yeah, yeah. And that's that. Yeah. So so there's all Fair those much. factors to consider. Again, I have no idea what this business, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I have not actually looked at this one, so I'm going to actually, thanks for the tip, I'm going to have a look at it. Um, I'm, uh, I'm generally not... Very biotechy. I'm a little mm-hmm. careful, or you know, gun shy when it comes to biotechs. I, I really need to understand what they're doing. Um, so yeah, I don't have a view on up here. Very good, but still uh, an idea on on how to think about US overseas listings and dual listings, which is important, Matt. So thank you for that. I have nothing to add to that one other than my general cynicism slash concern. Um, as always, I would say don't look at the movements of share prices to decide your investment ideas. Look at the impressiveness or otherwise of the businesses themselves. And where, no matter where they're listed, no matter where the share price has been going, although it can give you a sense of something maybe worth digging into, um, check out the business first and worry about the listing after that. Shouldn't worry you either way. All right, question from Sarah, and we love our female listeners. And again, I hope it's Sarah, not Sarah. In any case, um, I should I should mandate pronunciation, guys, when when people send us questions. Um, I assume it's Sarah, so let's go with that. And Sarah, if it's Sarah, I apologise. Hello, Scott and Doc. She says, "Hope you're having a good break." I was, thank you. And Doc was actually hard at work, thankfully doing something. I well, I could have a break, so I appreciate you doing that while I was there. She says, "Thank you for answering my first question. Apologies for the typo. She wrote SVG, but meant VGS, the uh, the global ETF." She says, first of all, I want to confirm that in Apple Podcasts, if you unsubscribe and then subscribe again, you get the Sunday Mailbag Extra episodes. Thank you to the listener for the tip. Well, that's good. Second, on that reviewer that called you <laughs> their drunk uncle, I wish you were my uncle. That's very kind, Sarah, I think. She says, family cable conversations would be way more interesting talking about investments than footy and Botox. Uh <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a family conversation about Botox, I'm happy to say. So I can agree, although, Sarah, I should say I do have more than an abiding interest in football. So maybe maybe careful what you wish for. Anyway, here she goes. Third, here's my question for the podcast. After buy now, pay later, cybersecurity seems to be the new hot topic. After doing some research, I found companies such as Cisco in the US and Tesserent, is it Tesserent? In Australia. And even a cybersecurity ETF, the code for that is the ASX HACK or HACK, HACK, I should say, or HACK. She says, What are your thoughts on this topic when it comes to investment? Do you think these companies will have more growth potential now that online shopping and working from home are the new normal? Keep up the amazing work, and Scott, please keep up the investment advice, drunk or not. <laughs> Okay. Can I confirm for everybody that I'm not drunk? Just just for the record. No, well, look, Scott is drunk on uh, Coca-Cola, no <laughs> sugar right Coke now. Coke Zero, there we go. Uh, yeah, Coke Zero yeah. on my no, no, not Coke Zero. It's Coca-Cola, no sugar. Coca-Cola is not going to like you for calling that um, 
Coke Zero, right? I, I, it's no sugar. I could care less, but I take your point. No, You're right. It's no sugar. I'm calling it zero because I stupid bloody root. Anyway, <laughs> well, it's I'm no not sugar. Rant about that. So I'm, I'm not drunk other than on Coke. No sugar, as Doc says. Um, and hashtag get Doc on Google Plus. I think we can all agree that would be a very good thing for Doc to be on. So Doc, get on Google Plus for Sarah or Sarah. Your thoughts, mate, on your you're our resident techie. Your thoughts on cyber security? She mentions Cisco, she mentions Tesserant, she mentions the cyber security ETF. What are your thoughts on the topic when it comes to investment? Yeah, so Sarah, I think you're on the money here. Um, I think cybersecurity as an area is going to grow leaps and bounds. You've already hinted at a couple of different things. Um, one was you said online shopping, working from home, but I think you know you can extend that a little further. Um, so every corporation, every enterprise has uh, an online presence today. Everybody, every corporation, every enterprise, you know, mid-sized to larger ones are using multiple different tools. Some of them are on the cloud. Some of them are not on the cloud. They're local, um, you know, on on what's known as on-prem hosted. How do you secure all of these things? You know, secure them from malicious users, mm-hmm. denial of service attacks. How do you secure them while providing, you know, um, basically um, world-class performance, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those are big problems. And um, both the cloud and the hybrid cloud, where it, which basically means that, you know, accessing things from the cloud and from on-prem mm-hmm. are big deals. Mm-hmm. So that's... This is a very active area. So, you, it, and you've uh, hinted at hack, which is something the the cybersecurity ETF, which mm-hmm. actually we hold in the Motley Fool Pro portfolio. There you go. Um, I think it's a, it's a fantastic way to actually get exposure here in Australia um, to um, cybersecurity and sort of the cybersecurity growth. Now, I'll say that um, there aren't that many worthwhile cybersecurity. It's actually one of the weaknesses here on the ASX where we don't have that many cybersecurity companies listed. Mm. Um, not enough choice, but there, you know, there are a number of good ones that one can look at uh, overseas. You've said Cisco. I wouldn't look at... Uh, I mean, Cisco is not on top of my bucket in terms of uh, cybersecurity. Okay. I mean, Cisco definitely is a networking hardware company with a lot... with with, with a with actually one of the, well, the fastest growing segments being mm. security. Mm. Uh, but you can find a lot of other pure plays um, okay. in, in the security area that might be of interest. But hack is, 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 a, is a very good uh, way to get exposure to. Another way to do this is actually to look at what hack holds. Look at the top five holdings of hack. That's a good starting point to see if you're interested in finding um, some other you know, ideas to research for though. But yeah, this is, this is really, you know, I personally invest in this area. I think this is, a, this is an area for long-term growth. Mm. That's a question I was going to ask you, Doc. I so to be to be slightly devil's advocate for for a second. I don't love thematic ETFs generally speaking. I really love broad index based ETFs because they give you low cost diversification, and you generally get. I mean, I guess I guess the Nasdaq's thematic by definition because it's tech. But broadly speaking, I'd call those you know exchange based broad index ETFs. When you come to a thematic ETF like gold or cybersecurity or I don't know e commerce or something, um, to some degree. Is the ET so well? Let, let me let me let me pose the alternative view and, and get your thoughts. To really know whether it's worth investing in that particular ETF, you have to be able to understand the theme and hopefully get it right, and then either have done the work or just take it on faith that the companies within that are capable of capitalising on the the trend and that they're at attractive enough prices to make it worth buying. I mean, like 
you, you know, for me, if I was going to buy the, the hack ETF, for example, and again, different story, you guys have got an ASX mandate, so you can't go and buy the companies themselves in the US. Um, but if I was an investor, I had a US brokerage account already, which I do, I would actually do take your second thought, which is check out the companies and say, well, hang on, I don't need to buy all of them as a basket necessarily. I could if I wanted to. But if I look at three and say, well, those three are horribly overpriced or aren't growing or I like those other ones better, what, what research does an investor need to do before just kind of going, hey, theme, tick, ETF, tick, job done. When it comes to things like valuation and seeing the market opportunity, does, does that add a layer of complexity? Yeah, like, I mean, sure it does. I, I don't disagree with you. So like, I mean, you'd have to, so like, I mean, if it was straightforward to say, well, you know, I like this mm. theme and and therefore any ETF that is cybersecurity focused is a buy, yeah. um, then there'll be no value add for us to, for example, add it to our portfolio in pro, right? right. So, there's, so there's work involved. In like as a cynic, out. I reckon that's, I mean, if, 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 you're, if you're an ETF producer, manufacturer, as they call them in the trade, that's what you're going to do, right? You're going to say, let's find a really hot trend. I'm sure there's cannabis ETFs out there. There's probably, you know, there'll be yeah. a 5G ETF at mm. some point where they say, here's a cool trend. Let's create an ETF and hope a lot of suckers who kind of go, hey, cannabis is cool. I'll just buy the ETF and who cares? I, if, I was a, if, if I was a cynical manufacturer, I want to maximize my profit. That's what I do. Yeah. Doesn't mean we should necessarily buy it, right? Yeah, yeah. So you have to do due diligence to look at it. I actually quite like this particular ETF. It's got good holdings in it. Um, nice. And it, it, it it's... But you've got to do that work, right? You've got to make sure. Yeah, yeah. you have to do that work to make sure because, the, you know, this, uh, okay. So you know, on the ASX, there are not that many choices, which basically means, well, there are a couple of different choices and you look at them. <laughs> if you were looking for right. cybersecurity ETFs, right. uh, like, I don't know, in overseas in the US mm-hmm. market, for example, I'm, I'm sure you'd probably find 20 or 25, right? Yep. And then all of a sudden you don't know which one to pick, right? So <laughs> in this case, you have a good one listed here, yeah, right. which is which is fine. Yeah. Uh, but if you had 25 in here to choose, you like yeah. it's a big, yeah. big problem. So I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Um, I'm like personally I'm a big fan of thematic investing understanding the theme mm. and then like so I don't invest in like personally I would mm. say okay mm. if somebody doesn't have access to investing overseas then find NASDAQ 100 is a good way to invest but I don't invest yeah, in right. NASDAQ 100 myself yeah. uh, because I would just go and f- look at NASDAQ 100 and see the underlying themes right. and find and buy, buy your favorites in there and yeah. buy the favorites in there yeah. right and if you can't do that then NASDAQ 100 is, is a good way of doing mm. it is mm. you know and uh, you know, and I'll say on Nasdaq 100, for example, if you you know you want to diversify, it's a great, uh, mm. great way to diversify, right? I agree. Um, so it's the same thing with with hack, but yeah, like you know, if you can look at individual companies and willing to look at individual companies, then a thematic thematic helps you mm. uh, narrow your choices. Um, so if you think of a cybersecurity, then you know you can look at a bunch of other companies um, and see. And again, there too, you have to think about the old old guard there's always a combank <laughs> equivalent uh in every industry right, 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 uh, right. so uh because there's going to be an incumbent which is like the combank mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then you want to find <laughs> the incumbent challenger and then see yeah. uh how how big the incumbent challenger can be yeah. uh, and, and things like that so you know that's I like a, it, man. yeah I like it. So yeah, I think, I think that's right. I just want to make the point that don't just be careful. Don't don't take the shortcut of you not know, doctor suggesting you should, but just so you know, you hear me say it, Sarah or Sarah. Um, just be careful about d- connecting the dots. Saying cybersecurity big, there's a, there's an ETF there, sure, therefore I should buy it. Um, and again, in this case it is worth buying, as Doc says, but in other cases it may not be. So just be careful there. Question from Ronaldo, Doc. I purchased Bravura Solutions at five dollars fifty. It was one of the stocks that was recommended by Extreme Opportunities. Unfortunately, the stock has been falling since the tip was announced. It was also bad timing as the COVID pandemic just hit the Australian market at the same time. <clears throat> he says, and it has not recovered since then. 
Also, the last report shows slow growth in sales. I would like to ask Doc his thoughts. Should I sell or hold as the share price is now down 36%? Thank you, gents. Ronaldo also says, here's our big big opportunity, mate, our big break. Mm-hmm. P.S. When are you upgrading from a radio podcast to a TV program? Hopefully soon, as I am sure we all would love to see you guys on TV. Now, Ronaldo, as I've said before, mate, I have a head for radio and a voice for print, mate. So you trust me, you don't want to see me on TV. Uh, I don't think we'll be doing a, uh, a video podcast. Then again, never say never. Maybe put a camera up in the corner and record the podcast. We never know. Maybe, maybe we should. Although, Ronaldo, you may have more people saying no than yes. So uh, you might be, maybe you're onto something or maybe people will be cursing you for suggesting the idea. In any case, not yet is the and really no, no realistic likelihood. But you never know. Strange things have happened. Doc, Bravura <laughs> Solutions. Firstly, mate, hit us with what it does and then tell us your thoughts on the stock. Yeah, so Bravira Solutions basically provides software to funds funds management industry. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, uh, if if you are a big company like say Mercer, you know, um, ANZ Private Wealth and things like that, then you would use their software to basically mm-hmm. run your funds, um, you know, reporting and things like that. Basically, all all the sort of things that you would need to do, um, the back, you know. You would do using Bravura, so uh, and Bravura has a bunch of different solutions that that does that. You know, they're leading their their uh, market leader or or their flagship solution mm-hmm. is uh, called Sonata, right? But yeah, I mean, they've got you know again so at a very high level, software for wealth management is the way to think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very sticky uh, product. When once somebody signs up, they're you know probably signed up for like you know they're doing long term deals of five to ten years. Mm. They would build features specific to client requests. Um, those features then the IP is owned by Bravura, which then they can you know use to buy, you know find other clients. Um, sticky. It it is okay. So here's the thing with Bravura. Um, Bravura has uh, strong operations in Australia, New Zealand. You know, a little uh, growing operations in places like South Africa and the UK. Um, so it's been hit a bit by uh, sort of COVID. It's been hit a bit by break exit. All of those things have been detrimental. But mm-hmm. the way to think about this business is, this is not going to be a high flyer in terms of revenue growth. But it is. It's got. A big runway opportunity here. It's an established, really, you know, established player with a good tool or a new tool, which is Sonata, mm. and um, it's going to steadily chip away at that. It, you know, it has another thing. You know, you're paying a eighteen times for Commonwealth Bank, or you mm-hmm. can pay twenty times for Bravura. <laughs> uh, Bravura is going to get. Uh, it probably, does seem like a strange comparison, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, but yeah, I'm just you know, Man. that's the market. The market is a funny place, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, so Bravura would, you know give you uh, you know low uh, high single digits revenue growth over mm. the long term it'll probably grow uh, earnings at a much higher rate you know and, mm. uh, and yeah that's the story you have to just be patient with with this particular company um it, yeah and I, I still like it i mean we're irrespective of the share price but you know the share price moves around yeah now growth is slowing he says are you worried at any point about that um, so, like, yeah, the growth was less mm-hmm. relative to what it was in the past. Okay. Is that a concern, or is that is that maturing? Is that a one-off? What do you put that down to? So, like, so a couple of things, right? I mean, it's hard to close 
sort of these type of deals without face to face meetings, right? Yeah, um, and it's also the other thing to realize here is there's a lot of customization that needs to be done. You, mm. you know, if people are cutting costs and waiting for sort of the, you know the how to see how the pandemic is going to play out, <laughs> you know, you could defer changing over your software you know you could continue using your legacy software for a yeah. couple more years yeah. before you move over to the new software or the new approaches or new you know and then mm. and eventually people I- use the new solution because well you know you need to upgrade systems at some point you yeah, don't right. want to have the in-house solutions you probably <laughs> want to use you know yeah. uh, a hosted solution yeah. from bravura instead of having the in-house you know hardware sitting there that you need to manage with an it person right mm-hmm. so that's the trend um I, I think long term this company would be fine and okay. which is why we have it you know and we've had you know this company has been on our scorecard for a long time so it's really he's talking about the re-rec I mean we've had it from when it was recommended when it you know, IPO'd on the ASX mm. um, I think like three four years back three years back maybe um, so yeah like I mean I like this company it's, it's a good you know it pays a little dividend it's a stable grower um, it's profitable which is not usually the case I feel <laughs> um, yeah. yeah and and you know we well, probably re-erected largely because um, again it just looks good good price mm. for mm. a future opportunity nice Thank you, mate. Good question. I have nothing to add for that one. You're the reviewer expert, Doc. So, uh, Ronaldo, hopefully you appreciate Doc's answer. Uh, sounds like a pretty decent one to keep holding. Um, it's still a buy for you guys. Mm-hmm. There you go. Still a buy. Question from Mitch. Mitch says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast and the SA and EO services. Which is kind of you to say, Mitch, because our listeners can join those services by going to a special podcast link. Only for our podcast listeners and joining either SA and or EO. And as Doc said in past episodes, why wouldn't you join both? Now, the URLs are pretty straightforward. It's fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast or fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. We made it simple because I'm a simple man and that way I can remember them. So SA podcast or EO podcast. And as Doc said before, or why not both? Because frankly, that'd be much more sense. And they are just stupidly cheap. I've said before, and I'm absolutely biased, but if you're investing any sort of money, the money, the, the, the price of our services is not cheap. As Doc said on Friday, they're inexpensive. They're not cheap, they're inexpensive. They are just so bloody inexpensive. <laughs> I just, I, it, it kind of boggles the mind, right? If, if Doc and I have managed to beat the market thus far, and it's possible slash likely in future, and you're not going to spend less than 100 bucks for Doc's or less than 200 bucks for mine, just to kind of get some market beating ideas potentially. I don't I don't know. Just it boggles the mind. Anyway, so join us. Fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast or fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Come and join us uh, on our investing journey towards growing wealth together. All right, so that over. Mitch says, I've even been able to get my wife interested in stocks through the podcast. Fantastic. He doesn't say what his wife's name is, but Mitch's wife, thank you for listening. Uh, through the podcast during our long family drives up and down the coast. He says it beats the dad playlist any day. Well, mate, I'm not sure about that. The dad playlist must be pretty ordinary if we're better than that, but we'll take it. Mitch's question, he says, my question relates to whether there is a limit to adding to your winners. And this is a regular friend of ours and Doc's in particular. Mitch says, I followed the Doc's advice to a T by starting with a small position in a company and have regularly added to that position over time. It is now a multi-bagger. Fantastic. But now represents more than 30% of my portfolio. And he says in brackets, is that a reason for concern perhaps? 
Is there a limit to adding to my winners and should I diversify by investing elsewhere simply to lower my overall portfolio diversification? I think he means increase his diversification or lower his concentration, I think. I can still see long-term growth in the company. I'm sure you can see my conflicting point of view. Interested in your thoughts, full on. Hashtag not sure if Insta is ready for Doc. Hashtag more cricket references. There you go, Doc. I'm going to let this one straight through to the keeper. Hey, hey. <laughs> cricket reference. And get you to answer it. And he says, cheers, Mitch. All right, Doc. So pad up and get ready for Mitch's question. Pushing off the sight screen like Dennis Lilly. Charging in. Lilly, Lilly, Lilly. <laughs> he bowls and Doc does what? Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> Not a chance. No, that's, well, that's what you do at a Dennis Lilly nah, bowling. So if, if you're ducky and you hit the helmet, mate, you got to sway. You don't try to duck out of the way of a Lily bouncer. You, you, you don't want to try to swing at that thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There end of the cricket references. How long should you keep adding to your winners, mate? Yeah, you know, so like, okay, so first we don't, we can't give personal advice. Uh, we don't give personal advice. Um, and the problem with this, okay, so... <laughs> There is, this is really an individual comfort thing. Um, so I, I, I will try to describe a framework now, <laughs> which I think might be useful. So one of the things okay. to think about is if you're adding money every so often, right? Um, and let's say you've got 20% allocated to company A. If you mm -hmm. don't add any more money to company A, and assuming all else being equal, mm -hmm. and this company A does not keep, you know, growing and growing and growing. Mm -hmm. Basically, its shares are, you know, if it doesn't keep, if its shares keep outperforming, then it's a different issue. Right, right, right. But uh, otherwise, what might happen is you'd be able to reduce the weight to this company A right. by adding uh, your, you know, your funds, putting your funds to work on other other companies, right, right. right? So I, one of the things that I try to do mentally. I have a cap of how much of my own capital I am putting towards a particular company company. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's somewhere around like I try to keep I try to keep that cap at around six to eight percent is okay. roughly where I cap it. Okay. Right. So the amount of capital I've put in, I'll not put more than six to eight percent into a company. So once you've got your your, your favorite company, it, it grows, you add it, you grow, it added, you grow, it adds or the other end. You you add it grows. Um, and you get to six or eight percent. Yeah, no, not six to eight percent. So six to eight percent of my capital in dollar terms that yes, I put in. Yes, yep, right. Yep, yep. But that position could at that point have been fifteen percent because if yeah. it has grown, right? But you, you know stop I mean? adding when it gets to the yeah. six to eight percent. Six to eight percent of my own capital. Right. Not okay. in terms of my percentage allocation. Uh, okay, right, right. Okay. This is what I do. Yep. Makes sense. Um and then I just let it be. Mm -hmm. Right, and I'd be actually perfectly comfortable. of you. Uh, I'd be perfectly <laughs> comfortable with a position being like you know twenty percent, twenty five percent, thirty percent. Although I would not recommend other people doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would be comfortable doing it, and I'm comfortable doing that. I have I have positions that are like 26 percent of okay. you know, my largest holding would be twenty five, twenty six percent. But I did not put that much capital into right. a position. Okay. I never put that okay. much capital into yep. a position. Um, so that's what I do. It's now the the flip side of that type of strategy is that if this particular, you know, the way the question that you need to think about mm. is if this thirty percent holding drops overnight by half, mm -hmm. how would you feel? Yeah, right, right. 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 And if you would feel miserable and you're going to be vomiting and you're going to be like, you know, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, right. You know, screaming, crying, whatever it is, yeah. then yeah. that's not right. Or, or worse, you actually sell out because you can't stand the pain. And you can't. So if it depends on what. 
is the pain tolerance yeah, yeah. what you think is the future opportunity um you yeah. know yeah so i haven't yet trimmed i like i, I try not to trim positions yeah, for, what happens if your 25 cent position doubles in size well like okay that so that would have okay, if that happens though that mm. would mean that i have got this one huge win and i have got nothing else happening yeah uh i hope that doesn't happen because because <laughs> yeah, right. uh, I, I hope that if i have a portfolio of 30 35 things yeah, yeah. you know i hope a lot of those other companies would you know would also do well but a simple uh, example i know no, this isn't the company and it's one i own but but let me use it for the fun of it so kogan's gone from six bucks to 22 odd in six months in that sort of scenario, if, if Kogan had been, it wouldn't have been. So I'm not again, I'm not suggesting you like this company that much. I'm not, not suggesting it's the right thing. But if Kogan would have been 25% of your portfolio in March, it's now up effectively three, fourfold. It could well have now been 70% of your portfolio in that sort of environment. So that your, your 25% could, could, could well, if the market was kind or maybe unkind, double. And, and in, in the short term in particular, if, if all of a sudden the market starts to love a company for a particular reason, like a Kogan-style gain, um, not impossible that you get to that sort of level, right? Do, do you do you trim at that point? Do you have you thought yeah, well, through? Yeah, like so. If it's a rapid rise, like if I have highly concentrated, like so, what you're describing would only happen if, like, you know, if I started off with a very large position. So let's say, mm. let's say I had a twenty, you know, fifteen percent position in Kogan mm. uh, at the March lows, right? And and then it like you know quadrupled. Yeah and the other stuff didn't right 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 then you could land up so that generally doesn't happen for me because you know like i mean because i already have a portfolio everything else yeah, would have yeah, shrunk yeah, in yeah, march sure. um yeah, come and, back together, yeah. yeah and then yeah. everything else comes sort of comes back together yeah. so i mean look 75 percent is too much mm. Arguably, thirty percent is too much. Okay. Um, when I run portfolios for the full, I have a mental model that, um, you know, I, I do let things run concentrated. I'm okay with twelve percent, thirteen percent. At some point, it becomes like you know, you have to really consider the upside yeah. versus the downside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, and you have to sure. think of the valuation. For and sure. you know, fifteen percent plus, it's like okay, it's like too much, and mm, you know. Mm, mm, mm. If the valuation is stretched, it can mm. pull back <laughs> quite a bit, and it's going to hurt. It, yeah. the, the, here's the thing, right? Your largest position goes up. Yep. Your portfolio looks great. Yeah. Your largest <laughs> position goes down. Right. Your portfolio hurts. Really, yeah, exactly. Right? Really so sucks, that's it? the thing that you need to think about. Yeah. Uh, yep. Really, and this is this like yeah. So there's no perfect answer in mm, my opinion, mm, but you need to really consider those things. Nice. Um, I yeah. Look, I think that's I think that's right. Again, he's asking about your particular strategy, Doc. So I won't add too much to it, other than to say, um, I, I echo Doc's point about risk tolerance. Um, Mitch, I've had positions that have been. I think at one point my largest position was actually sixty five percent of my portfolio. Um, of your entire portfolio? Yeah. Well, sorry, my ASX portfolio. Okay, I had okay. some stocks no, in the US. So I so. always think about it. Think about it yeah. in total. Yeah, yeah. Sixty-five percent is so irresponsible. Would have been about. Would have been about at that point maybe forty percent of my total portfolio, or something oh, like that. That's large. Um, <laughs> and it was because it, because it grew. So this was a stock that was up, I think, sevenfold um, in it, since I bought it. And so at that point, it literally just grew itself. I wasn't adding money as, as fast as the as the as the company shares were growing. And so that that just got to that point. Um, for for different reasons, I'm I'm a, I'm a reluctant seller. It also was a company that we'd recommended, so I didn't feel like it was right for me to sell down while I, while I was still recommending it was a buy. So I didn't. Um, subsequently, that that share price actually has fallen by about a third. So um, to your point about it hurting, that that does hurt to some degree. 
I have a reasonably decent cast iron stomach for risk and for vol- not for risk volatility. Um, it's never really worrying that much. It's never fun. Like I don't look and go, oh, wow, that's awesome. But um, I've been okay to kind of go, oh, like it sucks, but I guess that's what it is and it'll be back. And again, that portfolio approach and long-term approach has kind of kept me okay. To, I would never actually have added to that size though, to your, to your point, Doc. I will say in Motley Fool MDP, million dollar portfolio, we don't talk about it very often, but it's a service that I run that actually takes recommendations from share advisor, from extreme opportunities and from dividend investor. Our top four positions have almost all doubled in terms of size. In and one, so our top one, for example, is up three hundred percent. Our second largest position is up seven hundred percent. And so what that means is those two positions are now seventeen and eleven percent, respectively, of the portfolio. In large part because of the gains. I don't think we've added to either. Certainly not particularly recently. Um, but we do have a very very lopsided portfolio. And top, in fact, the top three positions are about thirty five percent of the portfolio. Um, that's not terrible, but it's certainly pretty large and certainly something we're going to have to keep an eye on. But that's exactly the, the, the challenge that you highlight, Doc, and that and the, the question was asked about, you know, what, what do you do? In that case, you know, we haven't added to it, so we're not adding to our winners, but there is still a portfolio allocation decision at some point to be made. Um, and I can absolutely understand Mitch's question because we're dealing with it ourselves. Um, generally speaking, to my mind, it's just straight out to risk, uh, sorry, not risk, volatility tolerance question. If you like the company, if you're happy to go for the ride, then go for it. But if you're not going to be able to sleep when they fall or you think it's going to cause you un- unnecessary financial damage, um, there is some time to potentially take some money off the table just to just to help yourself sleep at night if you need to do that. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Question from Dimitri via email. One of our email questions, Doc. Hey, fools, I often listen to your podcast. I'm a member of Dividend Investor, and I've got a question for you. Excellent. It'll be pleased to hear it. Um, I, I bought Aurora, the packaging company, on what I thought was a good price after it dropped a bit. It turned out they were doing their stock split, and I did not realize it. So I bought shares on the very same day of the split. So I got a number of shares before the split and it changed the next day after the split. So in other words, Dimitri here has bought shares based on the fact the share price had fallen, but they'd fallen because they were simply they split the shares. And so the falling share price was just a, a case of the pizza being cut into more pieces rather than it being a genuine discount. I can understand making that mistake. Anyway, he says, now I'm sitting on a loss with fewer shares than I thought I would own and less value for each share. I did not collect any of their special dividends. Oh, man, that's a, that's a pretty tough trifecta. He says, I want to dispose of my Aurora shares, but I have fewer shares than what I originally bought. How does this work for tax reasons? How do I calculate the buy versus the sale price? I'm regretting this bad choice. Now I've decided to follow your share picking advice instead. Thanks, Dimitri. Well, Dimitri, thank you for, for joining us. Thank you for trusting us to follow your, um, to, 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 to basically, you know, align your portfolio with our recommendations. We appreciate that. And we always appreciate the trust of our members. It's not, not something we take lightly. We have some fun on this podcast, but we do take our members' uh, trust and, and uh, frankly, financial um, realities seriously. This is a hard one, Dimitri. Um, I think, look... The number of share, the, the the cost base will be a function of the number of shares you bought and the price you paid, and if the shares have split subsequently, then the cost base splits accordingly. So there's no there's no kind of free lunch, nor is there a nor is there a unfair penalty here. Um, your contract note from your broker will say you bought X shares at X price, and you're when you sell them, you'll sell X shares at X price. 
And the difference there effectively the capital gain or loss is simply just the difference between those two numbers. And so you know, for, for all intents and purposes, look at the buy, the, the amount of money you spent to buy the shares, look at the amount of money you get when you sell the shares, include brokerage in both of those numbers and that's your capital gain or your capital loss. And in this case, it seems like a loss. Um, so sorry to hear that, um, but it's not too difficult, not much more difficult than that. So I know there's been lots of moving parts. Um, you could do it on a per share basis. You simply adjust the cost base on a per share basis. But if you're selling everything, it's just really, really simple. Look at how much if you invested five grand and then you're getting four grand back, then that's effectively all you need to worry about. As I said, include brokerage in that because you do get to allow that in your cost base. Um, but that's all you really need to worry about. Don't worry too much, particularly if it's too complex and it's kind of confusing you. Don't worry too much about the per share stuff. As long as you're selling the entire parcel and you bought them as a single parcel, then the total numbers are all you need to worry about. Any more on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. There you go. Question from Andrew. Hey, Scott and Doc. I recently signed up to both of your services. Thank you, mate. And I think what you offer is so very good for how so very cheap it is. Well, Andrew, normally I would have said thank you, but these days, because the doc's made a point, I've got to say it's not cheap, it's inexpensive. But I think I appreciate what you're saying. I think I take your point, and I think I agree with you. So thank you, mate. appreciate it. He says, I've got a question about Pushpay. I'm pretty bullish on the company as they roll out in America, but I wonder why they don't also roll out more aggressively in Australia and many other regions. I wonder if we should all load up on Pushpay before they go fully global if they ever choose to do so. Hashtag don't have a witty hashtag about Doc. <laughs> Full on regards, Andrew. I, I appreciate the honesty in the hashtag, Andrew. That's uh, that's a good one. I like it. Hashtag don't have a witty hashtag about Doc. It's a shame. We'll work on that. We'll work on that. Now, if you own Pushpay, we've got to be a little careful. We don't, we don't let our members come on and just say, you know, how, how, I think this company's great. Tell me how great this company is. Uh, but it's a, it's a valid question. And certainly we've got some Pushpay bulls in the team as well. Doc, do you have a view as to why they haven't yet rolled out around the rest of the world? Yeah, so they have operations in the rest of the world. So, like, I, I think here's the thing with m many, um, like, so if, you have a, if you have a payments business, right, a new form of payments business, or you have a new software business, um, you are, with a new, new modality, you are better off in many ways if you can conquer uh, the largest market or largest markets in the world, yeah. right? And the U.S. market is by far the largest market. So um, focusing on the largest market, winning there, um, you know, taking those lessons that you learned, building the product so it suits that market and then sort of rolling it out elsewhere is is one way to um, to win. So a lot of the companies that we have on the uh, EO scorecard, they have a very strong focus on um, growing their share in the U.S. market. And again, the, here's the thing, right? If you have a small company, relatively small company that can take 10% share um, of the U.S. market, that's a big deal. That's, a, that's a, you know, 10% 10, 10 share, you know, um, of the U.S. market is effectively like owning 100% of the Australian market, right? And 100% of the Australian market is really hard. 100% of any market is really hard, right? So, and and there's some halo effect that happens. And so it's just the scale thing. Mm. And with any business that can get, get advantage from scale, you know, what we call uh, leverage because you've got a fixed cost, you build a software, build a solution, um, it makes sense. Mm. So a lot of companies do that. It's not they would not sell it to other regions. They would just have it's a, it's a resourcing thing too. Like small companies have to figure out what's the best way to put their resources to work. Um, so there's that aspect. Um, yeah, and again, like you know, so companies with global aspirations would 
try to figure out where to start from mm. and uh, you know it's the same thing we we're talking about you know if you have got a medical technology company um it is really not an advantage to start from australia right i mean if you've mm. got a medical mm. technology that you you know even if it's innovated here developed here yeah. if you start here you start you you know and you get it approved by tga it's like you know you are um you've got a subscale business mm. at that point which you would not sustain you know, it's basically not going to be a profitable business, right? You want so therefore you either want to try to get hold of the EU open market, or you want to try to get hold of the US open market and then go from there. Um, that's the way I think. You know, the lar- that's the, just the large market advantage. Are there enough? Uh, is the push pay story then? If you were going to sort of break it down, is there enough in the rest of the world? For push pay, I mean, its business is obviously church payments, and the world's mega churches are in the US for for a very obvious reasons. How do you think about the rest of the world when it comes to push pay's business? Is there is there enough of? Are you excited about that, or is it kind of a bit of a? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it's one of those things where you know, even from Australia, we look at New Zealand and go, oh, it's about the same size as South Australia. It's not very exciting as as a growth market, right? Not us particularly, but any Australian company, there, well, we'll take it, but there's not really a lot of growth there. If you're in, if you're push pay, and you're you're already kind of you know maximizing your business in the US. Are you looking at Australia or Europe and going, well, it's okay, it's, it's half of California, or are you, are you genuinely saying, hey, there's a two or three or four X growth opportunity around the rest of the world? Yeah, so that, that I'll answer that in two different ways. One is that, I mean, Pushpay is a QV company, so it's, its origin is true, true. is from this part there of the world, go. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Australasian company, we like to call them. Okay, fine. No, <laughs> I, I don't want to annoy our, 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 uh, our Kiwi friends uh, for, you know, and take away their innovations, you know, Correct. But but but, but 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 it's an Australian company, right? From this side, so? you know, um, yeah, from the south, <laughs> southern hemisphere company. That's right, that's right. Um, so I mean, that's that. So it has local. There is that factor about big churches, but you know, there's another way to think about this company. So I actually don't think of this company as a payments company for the church. Okay, right? You know, I'm not trying to make this about religion, but every um religion yep uh and every you know church temple mosque whatever there there is an aspect of collecting yeah, funds right, of course. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, that is a you know and 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 that aspect of collecting funds applies yep so there's no reason that this can't be <laughs> scaled to Buddhist temples or Hindu temples yeah, totally. yeah, and yeah. other things, right? So they are. So it's op- not a church company. You, you kind of mean the Christian church specifically. Yeah, but but that's where they are yes. focusing right yes. now, on, right? Yeah. That's where they're selling. Uh, the Christian churches is where Makes they are sense. working, and and they're focused specifically on what you call the big, the big churches, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, uh, so, but the so the opportunity really is to take the same ideas and mm-hmm. to scale it to everything else, um, and it's again, I think it's a question of. Um, resourcing (laughs) it's a question so as the company grows it can look to tackle all these other things right so which is regional you know Christian churches in other countries or other big Mm -mm. temples whatever Mm. else exists you want to tackle in other countries where you have the same kind of scale that you can so so, so, yeah yeah. so the opportunity is large in that sense okay so and and that's a bigger opportunity than, than global in itself 
Well, like I'm talking global. I'm talking global. Like, so for example, if you if you know if you were uh, targeting say Buddhist temples, yep. you could go to uh, you know Thailand, uh, Malaysia, China, India, yes, yes, and many other places, and right. you know, and and, and you know, potentially into Japan, mm-hmm. and you would you'd have a large market that you could tackle, right? right. So makes sense. Okay. Would they have to come? Would they have to be actively trying to expand in uh, um, Australasia? Right. Maybe, maybe not, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a prioritization. It's not, it's not geographic specific, but that might be part of what happens if, as they go after other faiths. Yeah, I, I think right. so. Like, I mean, right. again, this is not something that's like, you yeah, know, yeah. It's, it doesn't even have to be in the pipeline now. Yeah, okay. Right? Uh, it, it is a possibility, I think, and it's a, it's a direct possibility. Is it necessary for the current valuation in your mind? Is it, is it attractive if they never do those things? Or do they need to do some of those things to make it worth no, the investment? No, I think, I think you, know, the, you know, the current valuation really is just about expanding into churches. Nice, okay, really, cool. so just getting more of the, you know, just just expanding yeah. the business in, in the, sort of the current business. Yeah, right? yeah. Interesting. There you go. Question from Tim, Doc. Hi, Scott. Question for your mailbag. I'm a long-term listener and Extreme Opportunities member. Oh, dear. He says, sorry, I would be a share advisor member, but I'm 28 and I like the riskier behavior of the Doc. Now, I need to be very clear here. Doc is not a risky behavior kind of guy. He just I'm likes not risky. higher return investment. <laughs> he's, not, he's not out there water skiing and rock climbing. I'm, and I'm very risk averse. You are reasonably risk averse in person. I'm actually yeah. very risk averse yeah. as a person. Yeah. Um, you know, but there's a different thing. To, see, yeah, maybe this is, you know, in, in investing, <laughs> taking higher risk, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that I am taking a lot of risks correct, in life. Correct. All right. He says, firstly, thank you for the weekly informative podcast. It is greatly appreciated. Our pleasure, Tim. This might be a very amateur question. That's okay, mate. We love amateur questions. If it is one, we'll find out if it is. But no question is a silly question, mate. if you're thinking it, I guarantee you there's 10 or 100 or 1,000 people out there thinking the same thing. He says, I recently received my dividend payment from a particular company, but I would actually rather have received a stock buyback. How is this achieved? And is there one platform to do this for my entire portfolio? Now, Doc, I think he's not talking about stock buybacks here. I think he's talking about actually re- dividend reinvestment plans. Is that your take on this question? No. So I think they're two different things, right? Okay. Um, but I think that's what he's asking. But anyway. Yeah. So if you know, stock buyback would mean actually reducing share count. Yes. Dividend reinvestment plans in most cases means increasing share count, at least yes. here, right? But Do in this case, he's asking, how can I achieve this? So I think he wants to… Oh, he wants to achieve it. Well, he's saying he wants to achieve So I think the question is probably about… Anyway, let's talk about both. Let's, so let's talk about dividends. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about stock buybacks. Let's talk about dividend reinvestments. So a stock buyback, you kind of can't do it yourself. There, there's no option to do that. No. I guess you could sell some shares, but that would kind of defeat the purpose because mm-hmm. you wouldn't own them. A company has to elect to buy back its own shares, either on market or off market. So, Tim, we can't help you with that one. If a company does it, as Doc says, it does reduce that share count, which is positive, and that's a good thing. But it's probably not going to. I think I'm going to speculate, mate, that he's talking about dividend reinvestments because he wants, rather than the cash, I think he wants more shares is what I think he's asking for. Okay. How does he go about having a dividend reinvestment plan for a company that hasn't offered him one? I guess you can't. And that's the problem. <laughs> Some brokers in the US, Tim, actually do offer this kind of off the, oh, so off the book, sounds like it's dodgy. Uh, in Australia, the company itself has to do the dividend reinvestment plan. In the US, you can ask your broker to kind of do it for you and they kind of then take those shares and buy more, take the dividend and buy more shares for you automatically when you get the dividend cash. So it's kind of a, an automated buy more program, if you like. Um, but unfortunately, mate, you can't. You can't actually have an elected buyback or dividend reinvestment if the company doesn't choose to offer it. Um, and as Doc says, partly that's because a lot of businesses don't actually want to 
dilute themselves by offering more shares. I think that's very, very fair. There are very few companies that actually do a DRP and then buy back the shares on market to make sure you don't dilute, but that's really, really, really rare. So unfortunately, no, you can't do it that way. If a company offers a DRP, they'll let you know and you enroll with the company. If they don't, you don't really have a choice. All you can do is take the cash and then buy some more shares when the opportunity provides itself if it's the best idea for your money. So unfortunately, we can't solve that one for you. But he has got a second question. If I can sneak in a second question. You're lucky, Tim. I'm in a good mood. What are your thoughts on Split It and the future of credit cards versus BNPL? Now, Doc, we've talked about buying our pay ladder, I think about eight of the last seven podcasts. So I think we've probably done that to death. But I will ask you specifically about Split It, whether you have a view on Split It, uh, either in general or relative to the rest of the BNPL players. Um, I don't have specific uh, thoughts. I mean, there there are a lot of these BNPL players right now. There right? are so uh, many, so many of them. Ones. So I don't have, you know, I have not oh, like in so detail many. looked at so many of uh, <laughs> all of them. Like I've looked at them, but not like you know dug into. So I don't have specific thoughts. Like I don't have any smart comments that I can make. So I'm just <laughs> going to pass on that. So okay, let me ask you a different question then. Of the BNPL players, do you have a couple of favorites? Yeah, so I really like Sector Leader, um, Afterpay. Um, I think Zip has promise. I think Sezzle has mm-hmm. promise. Um, again, just the growth rates are pretty pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a wide open market. So I mean, it's sort of like those. Yeah, it's 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 a good place to pro- perhaps take a basket style approach where you know you probably want to own yeah makes um, sense. a few different ones because you know again you you don't want to you know bet on one and believe that's going to be the winner and what if it's not the winner so I think the sector yeah. is is doing well and is going to do well if you don't you know and if you have doubts on who's going to win then you know you can take a nice uh, basket bet. Now, Doc, we are running out of time very quickly, but I'm going to push through. I'm going to try and speed up a couple because we are falling so far behind with our mailbag question. We're going to try and get through quickly, a couple as quickly as we can. So let's try and do something of a speed round. The next question comes from a guy called Nirban Mahanti. Hang on, what's... Oh, I see. So Doc got a question on LinkedIn from Owen and he's published it in our stock channel. So I thought it was a question from him, but it turns out it's not. Owen says... I've only recently dived into the world of the ASX and have found both the podcast and the share advisor service very beneficial. And Owen, that's because you're a smart man, a smart, smart man. He says, I really enjoy the different perspectives. For me, I have no technical analysis experience, but I have studied accounting and business while I've been in sales and marketing all my working life. So I resonate with value investing on good companies in growth markets. I'm not sure how to submit questions for the Sunday mailbag. Well, you have. Well done. One company I've looked at over and over is Emico Holdings. I can't help but feel it is seriously undervalued at 79 cents when it's EBITDA or EBITDA is $240 million and it's got $72 million in free cash flow. I won't go into too much detail here, but let's go with debt has been reduced. They're diversifying. He said, I've backed myself in and I've taken the leap based on that. But I would love to pose the question on the podcast as to why some stocks just don't get the recognition they deserve. Is it opportunity cost or maybe not as fast moving stock as some would like? Just really interested to know why some stocks go under the radar. Have a good one, doctor, he says. And that's from Owen via LinkedIn. Doc, how much do you know about Emico? Actually, not much. (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) Shall I grab this one? Yeah, please. All right. So Emico does mining equipment and... Uh, the mining equipment it does, and, and uh, Owen mentions they're in uh, gold, copper, and underground equipment hire. That's absolutely true. This is a business that is, in good times, a fantastic business. In terrible times, it's a woeful business. It almost went broke some years ago. 
the problem with this is this is almost kind of the very opposite of the current business stock likes. This business literally makes its business out of being capital intensive. That is, they buy all these machines, they buy all this equipment, and they put it in a, in a big yard. And they hope desperately someone calls them and says, guys, can we hire that from you? Because if they do, you can rent out equipment at two, three, four, five times the annual cost of, of buying it, right? Because it's a bit like the old, you know, it's canards up the road. Now, I've, I've been, uh, we're sitting at my place here in the Southern Highlands, New South Wales. Doc, I've been known to dig some holes with a post hole digger. Now, I'm not going to buy one of those and put it in the garage, right? But I've been to Kennards and I've paid my 100 bucks or whatever it was to, to rent my post hole digger. Now, it probably costs five, 600, 700 bucks maybe to buy. And I could if I wanted to, but I'm not going to use it once. So I'm paying my 100 bucks. Now, if I do that and then you do that and then the other guys do that and then all of a sudden over the life of a year, maybe 15 people pay 100 bucks to, to rent this digger. That's a nice return of 200% on the capital outlay in just a single 12-month period. The problem is if no one ever rents that post hole digger, Kennards have paid the money and it's sitting there idle and eventually, if you particularly if you borrow the money, you go broke. And that is kind of the Emico story, right? These guys are... Kennard's, Kennard's tire writ large, literally writ, writ massive. These are the big, you know, multi-story tire diggers and drillers and all sorts of fun stuff. I think, so oh, and I've got a couple of thoughts. The first that I actually have is things that look cheap are either one of two things. They're either great value or they're a value trap. And your question, I love the confidence of the question, but my instinctive response was maybe it's going under the radar and it's wonderful or maybe you're seeing something that isn't there, or maybe the rest of the market knows something that you don't. Now, I don't mean that about you personally, but I always ask that question for myself is, this looks too cheap. Either it is genuinely cheap, I'm going to make a fortune, or it's too good to be true and I'm missing something. And so when you ask the question in a singular fashion, which is, why don't the rest of the market realize how smart I am? And I'm, I'm, being, I'm being funny here. Um, then maybe you're right. Maybe this is fantastic value, or just maybe there is more risk there than you see. I would speculate that you might be right on Emico. Now, it's not a recommendation of ours. I don't have a look at it in detail, so this is not a recommendation at all. But there are some companies that haven't yet bounced back from the March lows. And even when business gets back to normal in some of these industries, they may do very well. The problem with Emico is it is so capital intensive that it really can't afford downturns to last too long. Um, it, it, back, in the, back in the downturn, I want to say this was probably five years ago, Doc, maybe... Yeah, five-ish, maybe even seven, six, seven. In Indonesia, it had a whole fleet of stuff. It couldn't sell. It, it, it couldn't rent them out and it couldn't sell them. No one literally wanted to buy the equipment because there weren't enough mines being operated at the time. Literally, it had all this stuff. It was all but giving it away and it couldn't. It could not find a buyer for this stuff. And if you're in that position, you're, you're in real trouble. And I think it's you know it's the equivalent of, a, of an investment property with not a single renter in sight. Um, great business till you, you're great to own an investment property while people are coming in to rent it. But if you've got to pay the bank back every month and there's no renters around, no one wants to rent your property no matter what, it's a really, really tough thing to do. So yeah, look, it's a tough one. I, as I said, I, uh, you know, again, you ask why hasn't it got the recognition it deserves. Again, I would just say, just make sure it does actually deserve it. So just check your rationale there. It does look cheap, but sometimes things are cheap for a reason. And that's probably the, the just the, the, the watch out there I'd probably give you. Uh, if I was a betting man, I think it's more likely than not to do well, but I wouldn't put the house on it. I certainly wouldn't say it's an absolute, um, an absolute no-brainer. Question from Craig, Doc. I love this is one. Of my, this is my favorite question this week. I don't know if you've had a favorite question award, but I am for Craig this week because I really love it. And I think you will too. I say love it, and I'll, you'll tell you'll hear why in a minute. Craig says, "Hey Scott, my grandson's most prized possession in the whole entire world is his Nintendo Switch." It's a gaming console. Something I find bizarre 
is his dream job when he grows up is to become a professional gamer. So I know I'm old, but lately when thinking about investing, I have been thinking about the concept of, and he, in quotes, intense customer love. For my grandson, I think Nintendo qualifies as a company with intense customer love. He's not the only one. Sales up 108% in the last quarter. A question for the podcast. If you two wise gentlemen had to devise a portfolio of shares and your only criteria for inclusion was intense customer love, do you think it would beat the market? Yes, I love the podcast full on. P.S. What one company do you feel would have to be included? For Doc, I am guessing Tesla. Now, Craig, can I say, that is the easiest guess in the entire world. <laughs> so I appreciate the guess, mate, but come on, you, won't, you didn't really have to try for that one. Doc, I love this question. I actually wrote about this, uh, again, I, I mentioned on Friday, um, I send out a, probably two or three times a week an email to our members and readers. Um, you can get go to the uh, fool.com.au slash triple M link and you can put your email address there to get... Um, to get our regular email or go to fool.com.au forward slash take dash stock take dash stock um, you get some marketing from us so be really really clear but I sent an email two or three times a week and actually spoke about this because I got Craig's question over the weekend and at the same time I literally as I was reading his question I was at Bunnings and seeing the line for the sausage sizzle that had just reopened and apologies to our Victorian listeners but the sausage sizzle had just reopened in my local Bunnings for the first time in months and there was a line of about 20 people lining up for that and just thinking about the Bunnings consumer and the, you know, we don't think about necessarily, I'm not saying this is the highest example of that, but the, the Bunning Sausage Sizzle, the, the reverence with which we hold that, that particular Saturday morning institution is something. And I just, so I wrote about that this week. Uh, so if you, are, if you are interested, jump on that mailing list and have a look. I did link it on, our, on my socials as well. It's on our, my Facebook page and I shared it on the full Facebook page. So jump on there if you want to read it. Um, in any case, I just love the idea, mate, of a different way to think about it and a very capital F foolish way to think about this stuff. You know, the, the financial media, the the boffins, the, the shiny bums on, on you know, in big office towers aren't putting intense customer love in their spreadsheets, right? Because you can't. And yet, this is one of the really, really, really powerful ways to think about the future potential of a business. I have underestimated this in the past. You've given me grief many, many times and I'm sure you will many, many more times about Apple. And I, ha- I don't own an Apple phone. I'm not a massive Apple fan. But man, like t- for me not to have seen the, and, and acted on, they're just, you know, people line up around the block to get a phone from Apple. Like if that's not intense custom love, what is, right? Or if people are paying six figures for an electric car that I'm sure is great for a whole lot of reasons, but I'll tell you what, love is the number one or two reason people are buying a Tesla, even if they don't believe it or don't realize it. Um, they are serious, serious, you know, that 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 <laughs> locks in consumer behavior. So I guess I've probably answered the question for myself, Doc, but to, to Craig's first question, he says, if you had to devise a portfolio of shares and your only criteria was intense customer love, do you think it would beat the market? Oh, absolutely. I think so. Uh, I'll just extend that. So this is actually I, this is a brilliant. Isn't question. it cool? It's I, I was so excited question. to answer this one. Um, it's actually, you know, I should have not even said it's a question. It's a brilliant comment, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's and it's a nice it's an observation, uh, right? Yeah, nice yeah. observation. Sometimes this is the way. So, so one of the rules of thumbs that I have if I'm building my own portfolio. I do look around of stuff that I love, mm-hmm. other people love, yeah, right? right? And, um, you know, Tesla, he said, is a fantastic example, right? You know, um, I paid money, oh, small deposit, three years without seeing a car. Yeah, that's right. Without seeing the vehicle. <laughs> I don't know how much you, you know. pay, Matt, but at one point the deposit was for 1500 bucks. Yes, I did, I did pay 1500 For people to put that down, I mean, this was, this was pre- 
Tesla actually being even profitable, right? Like people are literally going, I want that car so badly. Yeah. Here is $1,500 of my money. I may not see the car. The company could go broke. And I'm not saying it was going to, but just, you know, in terms of like the, the perception, but yeah. I'm going to do that because I desperately want this car. Yeah. So 500,000 people <laughs> around the world paid that? that deposit. That's brilliant. Uh, okay. There are hundreds and thousands of YouTubers. Yeah all vying to make videos about Tesla's this, <laughs> Tesla's that. That's right. And if you're on you uh, on, on Twitter, yeah. you would see uh, Tesla India Club asking desperately from Elon, yep. when are you going to send cars to... So there are people <laughs> who have given reservations in 2016 and are still waiting because they have, don't have a sales office in India. Yeah, yeah. They do not sell Teslas in India. Yeah, yeah, and he's finally said, okay, yeah, the cars are coming next year by January. Yeah, yeah. Right? So this this is an example of where people are willing to wait years yep. to get a product. Yep. I have never seen stuff... You know, it this is, is amazing, the, the only it? time I've seen this is... I've seen this with Apple and I've yeah. seen this with yes. Tesla. Yes. Th- th- those, you know, again, like those are really great indicators of yep. where uh, you can take that brand. It's a it's an indication of the brand power and the power how people mm-hmm. associate and identify with the brand. There are many other examples you can take. Amazon, for example, mm-hmm. you know, people yep. the yep. Amazon's customer yep. first, putting making things available to mm-hmm. people at you know cheap prices, making it yep. accessible, making it available. But I was going to extend that by saying customer love is one thing, um, and also. So the Nintendo example, for example, so things that things like Nintendo, you'd have to be careful that you know they have uh, you know a release cycle, and those around those release cycles and around certain upgrade cycles, you're going to see a huge bump, right? So so there's that effect that one needs to be mm-hmm. aware of. One needs to also think about when you think about this customer love, customer love, customers love a lot of different things. Yep. Um, I'd say customers love Fitbit too. The Fitbit customers love Fitbit, yep. but you need to think about. Um, the total addressable market and their ability to actually execute on that, sure. right? So that's yeah. the other aspect one needs to think about. I think there's an, an extension to this idea, which is, um, I call it developer love. Okay. Right? And if if you're looking at a software company, and this is you know this goes to enterprise, but if you're looking at a mm-hmm. software company where the, the people who are going to use the software yep. to develop some things love it, mm-hmm. crave it, that's right, a right, good right. indicator of again demand. So I mean, yeah. one way to think about that is like AWS, right? I mean, every so customer and supplier love almost. Could we say that? Or? Yeah, like it's it's those people who are users. Those yeah. people, user love. Okay. Yeah, okay, user love. Nice. Uh, nice, use, nice. User love. Nice. Um, you know, and if you're crazy about it, that's mm-hmm. usually a very good indicator of. Um, it's an indicator of quality of yep. some form, yep. which you yep. cannot put down on a spreadsheet. Yep. I, I think that's right. I think so. I, I, I will even include Fitbit mate, in 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 the comment as as the example of when it doesn't always work out, but yeah. almost but almost to the point of of Craig's question, which is as a portfolio, I still reckon I back it in. Now, uh, uh, the other thing, obviously, Craig, you know, there, there is in some in some future universe, every customer with intense customer love is on a PE of four million, and so it it is it is always entirely possible that those companies that you simply put in that portfolio on that basis are simply just way overvalued at some point for whatever reason. So again, like it's not, you can never make arbitrary, always true kind of, comp, you know, um, assertions about this sort of stuff. But I take Doc's point. If if intense customer love means repeat purchase, probably high pricing power, probably fanatical, um, you know, Doc's occasionally mentioned Apple and Tesla on this podcast as an example of, of the sort of, you know, strength of, of conviction, both as an investor and as, as a user of the company's products. And they are, they're really, really important, right? So that that evangelism of customers, my fa- you know, my f- favorite intense customer love 
uh, example, Doc. Tell me. Is there is one company whose customers love a business so much, they tattoo the company's name on their bodies. And that's Harley Davidson. And at some point, like you think about, you know, <laughs> there's, there's love and there's love. Maybe there's, I imagine there's got to be some Tesla tattoos out there, I suppose. Um, but if you think about that, like, you know, there, there is, there's love and there's love and there's just, hey, write your name on my body. I will pay someone to do that for me. Um, so, you know, th- those, those businesses are, are really just fantastic, fantastic companies. Even, and even the Fitbit example, I, I would argue for what it's worth that, you know, again, as a portfolio, Fitbit today is would be a much much worse company. Even it's in it's in its own financial challenges as it is, but it'd be what a factor of two or five times worse if it didn't have that love as well as everything it had, right? So if it just had the products but nothing else, then it it'd be broke by now probably. Now it may still go broken. I'm not arguing for you know investment in Fitbit because of that love, but I but I would say it gives any company at any stage of their life cycle, in any circumstances, just extra chances of being successful or being less unsuccessful of, of surviving long enough just because those people will go and buy a second Fitbit, a second Harley, a second Tesla, an upgraded Apple iPhone. You know, those those things, I think, absolutely. If you can find those businesses. Um, I think, the other thing too, by the way, is I think it's a great opportunity to find growth businesses that are maybe a bit under the radar. And Doc, I don't know if I can think of any instinctively, but I'm, you know, if I could find a business that is an upcoming business with great customer love, I think that's a pretty good screening tool too for the, the growth companies of tomorrow. So if they're smaller businesses that have you know intense followings but are still getting started, but their customers love that new small business so much they are continuing to use its products, that's a pretty good sign, I think, that the future is bright. If, they, if, they, if they're going back, if they're talking about it, if they can't wait to use the product again or buy the next one, um, that's a pretty good sign, I think, that, um, you know, that the future might be bright. So if you find a new up-and-coming company that sh- exhibits that sort of uh, response from some of its consumers, that's a pretty good starting point, I think, to try and work that out. Any more on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to add. I'm going to do two more questions, mate. I'm sorry, right. I'm going to Let's push us. Here we go. From Jason. Hey, Scott and Doc. Love listening to the podcast while I'm driving around. The two-year-old in the back seat, on the other hand, would much rather I put on the wiggles. <laughs> Fair enough. So Jason's two-year-old. Beep, beep, chugga, chugga. You got it. Big red car. Mashed potato, mashed potato. No? Anyone? Um, Any more? That's all I can come up with, really. Wake up, Jeff. All right, we're done. Hopefully, Jason, your two-year-old enjoyed that. If not, my apologies. Speaking of the two-year-old, her grandparents are giving her 50 bucks a month to save up for the future. And I'd like to put that into a market index fund of some kind for her rather than a savings account earning effectively nothing. Not going to become a millionaire with that, but it might put a dent in a house deposit in 20 years' time. Not to mention a great lesson in compound interest in 10 years' time. And I love those two observations. I think they're great. Unfortunately, with those kind of amounts, brokerage is going to be a killer on buying an ETF, even if only buying once a year. And managed funds like the Vanguard one I looked at seem to have a minimum $5,000 entry. I know you can't give personal advice, but wondering if you can think of any other products or strategies I could be looking at. Full on, hashtag get Doc in the big red car. <laughs> Here you go, Wiggles, oh, Wiggles and, and Doc hashtag. Doesn't get much better than that. Um, Doc, I'll go first here. Jason, um, we have no product affiliations at all, um, but one you might look at is Comsec Pocket. Um, they do two buck trades, I think, and you can trade for as little as fifty dollars. Um, so that's a, that's absolutely ready made for this sort of investment approach. I think it's definitely worth doing. If you're investing in the US, you can probably do it um, for for zero. Although the um, just the pain and the the, the conversions probably I don't know if it's even worth it. Maybe it is, um, but fifty bucks a month. I'm not sure if you'd. If I'd bother personally, Doc may differ. Um, I would I would probably 
I mean, find better something better, go with something better. But I think for me, I'd go straight to Comsec Pocket, two bucks a trade. Maybe do it once every two months, three months. That'll keep your brokerage to you know two percent, maybe you know something less than two percent. I think that's a pretty fair way to do it. As you mentioned, mate, um, the twenty years and the the lessons are probably the more important ones here. I'd pay two percent in brokerage to to have that benefit, that advantage. So I think if it was me. Um, I'd probably save up a couple of months at a time and, and go with something like Comsec Pocket. There might be something better comes along, by the way, at some other point. They only do ETFs anyway, so it's probably perfect for what you're looking for. Um, that's a pretty simple, easy open and shut case, I reckon, for me. Doc, any, any additional thoughts or any different thoughts? No, I don't really have any additional thoughts. I mean, you know, if you can find a broker which is relatively cheap, um, then, you know, I'm a fan of cheap brokerage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, agreed. And particularly those sort of amounts, you want to be able to contribute yeah. relatively regularly. All right, last one, Doc, from Jesse. And this one I had to ask because, well, hashtag at the end, I'll tell you why. She says, hi, Scott and Doc. Thank you for the podcast and answering our questions. You guys are awesome. Oh, thank you, Jesse. It's very kind. She says, I'm building a growth dividend portfolio with the aim of producing a passive income stream big enough to live off. Love that. So far, I've been buying quality dividend stocks and dripping my way, you know, those dividend reinvestment planning my way towards my goal. So far, so good. But I've been thinking, should I change approach to something more extreme opportunity-like to build the portfolio more quickly and then pivot into income-producing shares once the portfolio value is larger? I think I'm a buy-and-hold kind of gal. Thanks heaps, Jesse. Hashtag, Doc should buy Scott a Tesla. I think that's a very, very good point, Jesse. That is absolutely what should happen. You should buy me a Tesla, Doc. Jesse said so. Jesse must be right. Looks like I'm just getting ripped off here. You you, you love and respect our listeners. (laughs) Jesse must be right, surely. Hmm. No? Um. (laughs) That's a no. (laughs) What should Jesse do, mate? She wants to to build an income-producing portfolio. She's one of those fire people, financially independent, retire early. She's looking to build and compound her way to early retirement, which I think is a great idea. How should she do it? Um, so like, again, like this, this gets into a little bit of a, so I think it depends on stage of stage of life, True. right? And it depends on risk tolerance. If like, if you are retired and you have, you, you want to focus on income, then you potentially want an income focused portfolio that, you know, allows you to probably, um, you know, draw from the dividends and frankings mm, and things like mm. that. If you're still building your portfolio, then there's a whole heap of other things that you could do, um, which is, you know, focus on growth. And then eventually mm-hmm. you take, you know, by selling some stock, you'd basically get um, some income, mm, right? Mm. Um, so, again, you know, if you want growth and you are in, you're, you're happy to trade that growth off mm, mm. Um, for with some higher risk, then, mm-hmm. you know, buying... In the stocks that sort of small cap, high growth, high mm, mm. high risk is is fine. So again, you know that, that's what I would say about this one. Um, um, yeah, if you want to, if you have like you know a decade worth of investing to do in terms of building a portfolio, and then want to pivot, that's different from mm. having. So it depends really on yeah, the time frame. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough one, isn't it? I think there's a couple of things too, Jesse. I mean, you've got to think about your your capital gains tax requirements too. You know the 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 cost of building a portfolio then selling a decent chunk to then reinvest in something else for the dividends um you kind of you know i mean let, let's assume you do really really well with your with your uh, growth strategy and you've tripled your money over any any length of time you're going to lose you know the best part of 20 percent of that if you're selling large chunks of it um in capital gains tax to go and then buy a, a dividend producing company now that's 
probably still worth doing if the net result is better, but you're going to earn dividends uh, on the on the reduced after-tax component you got left over. So you need to kind of be mindful of that if you're going to sell to produce the income. Now, you can sell down, as Doc said before, um, in small chunks to produce your income. That's a very, very viable, very decent way to do it. Um, I have a I have a suspicion. I have never done this, but unless you're a great stock picker, and we hope that we can achieve those um, that that epithet over time, but if unless you're a great stock picker, my sense is probably that avoiding tax, particularly if you're gonna you get, if you're gonna turn an income portfolio into a, into a oh, sorry a portfolio into an income stream over time, my supposition is that you want to be able to do that without selling because you don't have to then have your income reduced over time. And so something that's going to produce income and ideally growth, and you say you're a dividend growth investor, I think that's the right way to think about it. Um, for the long term, I have a suspicion might be the best way to go. So if you could find a company you could hold for 15, 20, 25, 30 years, never have to sell and get a decent income stream from over that period of time, that's probably the holy grail for an income investor if that's what you're looking for. Um, and I think that's probably the way... I would think about doing it. Now, as I said, Doc's got a very different approach. And I think if he can deliver market beating gains, um, you're much better doing that than, than having you know market lagging performance in a dividend paying stock. So you know, performance always needs to come first. It's a little bit like that idea of people ask their accountant, how can I pay less tax? Well, what they really should be asking is how can I pay more tax by making even more money, right? So um, you want to maximize your after tax returns. You don't want to minimize your tax. And if that doesn't seem different to anyone listening, have a think about that. Because if I could earn a million dollars and pay... 200 grand in tax, I'd rather do that than a $100,000 of paying nothing in tax, right? It makes obvious logical sense when you think about it, yet most of us go to our accountant and say, how can I pay less tax, please? And they'll happily dump, dump you into some negatively geared property that may or may not be great for you, but you feel better because you're paying less tax. So Jesse, from that perspective, look at your maximizing your after-tax returns in whatever form it comes, and then using a small chunk of that to, to pay for your lifestyle over time. Um, again, remember, dividends are franked, which helps. Um, remember the capital gains tax discount for long-held stocks. But of course, the best capital gains discount is one you never pay, which means if you can afford not to ever sell, um, there's some pretty good rationale for doing that as well. And of course, you're right. Doc should buy me a Tesla. Any more on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to add to that. All right. I'm going to call this one. That's been a fantastic mailbag. I've thoroughly enjoyed getting into your questions. So thank you to all of you who sent them in. And for those who had sent questions in and haven't had them answered yet, don't fret. Don't frown. We will answer some of your questions. Should we do a mailbag episode next week as well? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's a given. Well, we'll do a mailbag episode next week. So stay tuned for that one. We will look forward to it. We've already got... One, two, three, already in the mailbag to start off next week. And I'm sure we'll get plenty in the meantime. So apologies for not getting to every question we were asked, but such as the such as the great questions we get and the number of them that we get through as many as we possibly can. In the meantime, do send us the questions for next week. If you haven't yet, if there's something on your mind, hit us up and send us your question. Let's go and reverse this time. Start with email info at fool.com.au if you're an email kind of person. That's the best way to get to us via our member services, Fools, who will make sure your question goes to the right spot. If you're on Facebook, go to The Motley Fool Australia, surprise, surprise, or I'm Scott Phillips Money. You can see our content there. Reply to us, send us, uh, leave us a comment or send us a direct message. Hit us up on the Instagrams. If you take a photo of your lunch and send it to us. No, don't do that. I don't want to see photos of anyone's lunch. But if you've got any questions or comments, I'm at TMFScottP. The Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. They are, not coincidentally, the same as our Twitter handles, at the Motley Fool AU and at TMF Scott P. And as a special bonus for Twitter users, 
That's also where you'll find the one and only place on the socials you can find the good doctor. So at Anirban Mahanti, if you want to find Doc, he's got some great things to say. Uh, worth following, worth asking him a question, jump on there. Include us uh, in your tweets, use our handles, use our hashtags, and of course, hit us up with a direct message if you want, and we'll try and answer your questions there as well. Oh, mate, Doc, that was a big mailbag, wasn't it? That was very long. That was fun. I like that. All right. And of course, please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app or podcast one. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, leave us a rating, throw us some stars, tell your friends like Harley Davidson, feel free to tattoo Motley Fool Money on your body. Uh, we can send you some photos of Doc, especially that your tattoo artist can use to um, to put his face in appropriate places on your body if you if you feel so inclined. I'm sure he'd be, um, be pretty chuffed by that. Uh, or don't. Probably don't, actually. Anyway, also you can get a dose of foolishness and a couple of emails from me straight to your inbox and a couple of marketing emails, by the way, by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's big, long mailbag for Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next Friday with our regular episode and another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.